begin the ministry of the Word of God, there's one announcement that we need to bring to your attention. Uh, There will be a membership class for those of you that would be interested in membership here at Cornerstone. That class will happen on August 16th and 23rd. There are two classes, and it will be at 9 o'clock downstairs in in the basement. You can sign up at the Connections desk after the service or through e-news. And if you don't have e-news or don't receive e-news, you can email the church office, and that is office at cornerstone.org. So thank you and hope to see you in that class for those of you that are interested. Well, today I want to be sharing from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I begin preparing for this sermon, and I got this crazy idea that I could cover four descriptions that the Apostle Paul gave concerning us as Christians in chapter 4 and 5 of 2 Corinthians. And when God brought me to my senses, I realized that I couldn't do that. The original title of this sermon was Jars, Tents, Persuaders, Ambassadors. And I quickly realized, and my wife looked at me with that look, mm-hmm. I realized that, no, that wasn't going to happen. As I began to dig into chapter 4, stopped. Am I okay? All right. Can you hear me? Okay. All right. So we're going to be taking a look at this uh, portion of Scripture. It's a portion of Scripture that will teach us a lot. A lot about ministry, and a lot about what a ministry should look like, and a lot about what a man of God should look like, and a lot about what you and I should look like as Christians. So before we begin, let's dig into the background a little bit. Some of you know that the Apostle Paul actually wrote four letters to the church at Corinth. Two of those letters made it into the canon of Scripture, First and Second Corinthians. The first letter that Paul wrote was delivered by Titus, and this letter was to address a number of doctrinal issues that were going on in the church there at Corinth. There were issues of jealousy and strife that caused division within the church. The fellowship had been fractured by rival parties. People were running around saying, I am of Paul and I am of Apollos. If we were to bring that up to modern-day terms, it would be like people here saying, well, I listen to Steve, but I don't listen to Stan, or I listen to Jason. No, I like little Jason, not big Jason. That's what it would be like. So Paul was writing to address that. There was also sexual immorality going on in the church, and it was the kind of sexual immorality that not even the pagans would tolerate. A man had his father's wife, and the Corinthians were not sorrowful over that. They were arrogant about it, and Paul was writing to correct that as well. They were also having petty disagreements, and these petty disagreements would escalate to the point that they would take each other to court before unbelievers. So Paul is writing for that as well. They also were defiling worship particularly during the Lord's Supper. It became a selfish 
and a disorderly time within the church of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, don't you got homes to go home to? Don't you have a place at home that you can eat? And they were abusing worship. There was also a general lack of love in the Corinthians church. Many of you are familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Well, that's why Paul was writing 1 Corinthians 13, because there was a lack of love in the church there at Corinth. And finally, they had some doubts about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and Paul was writing to correct those things as well. And Paul sent this letter by Titus, and Paul was anxious to know how his letter was to be received by the Corinthians. In fact, Paul was so anxious about hearing from the Corinthians that he had an open door to go to Troas and preach the gospel. But his heart, his heart was burdened because he needed to hear about what happened at Corinth. So he leaves there and goes to Macedonia to meet Titus. And Titus brought him some some news about the Corinthians. Some of that news was encouraging. The Corinthians had responded to Paul's letter with godly sorrow unto repentance. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, it says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved unto repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. So the Corinthians responded with repentance. And they also had treated Titus with respect and affection. They also had taken action to purge the sinning man out of their church. So Paul was encouraged. But there was also some bad news. There was a defiant group within the church. They were claiming that Paul's words could not be trusted. That he wrote one thing and he did another. And they were making reference to his plans to visit Corinth, but he never made it. They were also questioning his apostleship because he did not come to Corinth with letters of commendation. In 2 Corinthians 3.1, Paul writes, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? And finally, there were false teachers who had crept into the church. They were sowing seeds of discord and disaffection. They were unwelcome intruders who were preaching another Jesus and claiming that Paul was brave from a distance, but weak in person. They were assassinating Paul's character and his ministry. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he's writing to address all of these things. He is writing primarily in the first seven chapters to defend his apostleship. And in the midst of these first seven chapters, there's a lot that we learn. A lot that we learn. In chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, Paul gives them some encouraging words about the comfort of God, assuring them that if they go through suffering, God would be with them. 
He also tells them about why he changed his plans to come to Corinth. In chapter 2, he instructs them to forgive the sinning brother so that they would not be outwitted by Satan. He also talks to them about the spread of the fragrance of the gospel, the knowledge of God. He told them that this fragrance was a fragrance of life to those that are being saved and a fragrance of death to those that are perishing. And then in chapter 3, he talks about the sufficiency of the word of God, and he talks about the ministry of the new covenant. And that brings us to chapter 4, where we want to begin to dig in to the word of God. What does ministry look like? What does it sound like? What does the man of God look like? And what Paul is teaching here applies to all of us. Don't think that it is exclusive to the ministers of the gospel. No, it applies to every one of us that name the name of Christ. Paul's writing to correct doctrinal error, yes. He is defending himself, yes. Not that he wanted to, but he needed to. He was addressing the dangers of false teachers and a false gospel, but he never loses sight of his focus, and that focus was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing was going to distract him from the truth of the gospel. And in that process, we see him using a term to describe himself and us as Christians. I had to retitle this sermon. It's not jars and tents. It's just jars. Okay, it's just jars. All right, so Paul begins chapter 4 with these words. He says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. The first thing that Paul recognizes is that the source of his ministry, and that's bullet point number one in our outline, the source of his ministry had been given to him by the mercy of God. This ministry of the new covenant, this ministry of righteousness, this ministry of the spirit, it was given to him by the mercy of God, God's kindness, God's favor. And Paul wanted everyone to know that the source of his ministry wasn't his wisdom, wasn't his cleverness, wasn't his ingenuity. It wasn't anything about him. It was by the mercy of God. The goodness, the compassion, the love of God shown to undeserving sinners like you and I. And no doubt, Paul probably recollected his life prior to coming to be a Christian and realizing that God had extended to him as a guilty, condemned, and hopeless soul mercy. And he did not want there to be any appearance of conceit or arrogance or self-confidence or self-reliance. He wanted to make sure his audience understood that he was in this ministry by the mercy of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, Paul said these words. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy. 
because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. And from that, we learn that any minister worth his salt will be humbled if he stops to consider his life prior to Jesus Christ. If he stops to consider the mercy that God has extended to him prior to him coming to know Jesus Christ. And Paul traces his ministry, he traces his appointment back to the mercy of God. Do you ever think about your life prior to Christ? Do you ever stop to think about the mercy that God has extended to you? What a glorious thought. Paul says, it's all of God. And let me point out this. Paul is a minister of the gospel. But this applies to anyone that is involved in the proclamation proclamation of the truth. Whether you're in the nursery cleaning snotty noses and changing diapers, if you're there because someone else can stand in here and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed, then you are in ministry. And you are there by the mercy of God. If you open your home so that you can have a Bible study there, guess what? You are in ministry. And you are there by the mercy of God. Everything that we have in this life is given to us by the mercy of God. If we got what we deserve, none of us would be standing here today. We would be perished. Because that is what we would deserve. But Paul says, this ministry, this ministry has been given to me by the mercy of God. And at the end of this, he says these words, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. Now, with the naked eye, you would look at that word and it would mean faint-hearted. But it's more than just being faint-hearted. The word actually means, it's a word that could be translated to coward, to turn out to be a coward. To lose one's courage, to despond in view of trial and difficulty. It has the sense of defection, turning and running away from ministry. Paul says there's no place for faint-heartedness, and there's no place for faint-heartedness because mercy has put me in this ministry, and mercy will help me to continue in this ministry. You know, ministry can be difficult. And the Apostle Paul here is showing us how difficult ministry can be. He had planted that church in Corinth, and they were at the point of breaking his heart. But Paul says, I'm not going to lose heart. And we learn here that the motivation for ministry can't be anything other than the grace and mercy of God. Because if it's anything other than that, I am going to turn and I am going to run. You see, the man of God is to be a man of God that is gripped by the truth that God's mercy has been extended to him. 
And as a result of that mercy being extended to him, he must continue on. There's no other thing that he can do because it is the mercy of God that keeps him going. How many of you know people that have defected from the faith? How many of you know people that, or pastors that have defected from the faith? What kind of ministers do we want to be here at Cornerstone? We want to be gripped by the mercy of God. And later on, we're going to see that Paul's not not deterred by difficulties in ministry. We want to be the kind of ministers that realize it's the mercy of God, not our wisdom, not our ability, not our ingenuity, but men that openly acknowledge and understand that by the mercy of God, we are in ministry. And as children of God, you need to recognize that as well. It's the mercy of God that you're in ministry. So you don't lose heart. You don't lose heart. Number two. Paul's desire was was to be a man of integrity. In verse two, he says, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. You see, Paul's commitment to the truth caused him to renounce, to speak out against anything that was disguised, anything that was crafty, anything that was underhanded, anything that was fraudulent. And this section is so vital and important because it teaches us exactly what the minister of the gospel should look like. My fellow elders, hear me. This is the men that we are to be. Paul denounced anything that would be disgraceful, anything that would bring shame, anything that would be done in secret, the type of secret sins that eat away at the soul of a man. Disgraceful disgraceful conduct, all underhand dealings, men that operate in an atmosphere of deception. And Paul was dealing with that in Corinth, the secret whispering of the discord and particularly against Paul. They were whispering against him. And Paul probably was referencing, and no doubt he was referencing, the super apostles whose secret motives was to lead the church away after their own agenda. The super apostles, they were not sanctioned by God or appointed by God or the apostles They were deceivers trying to lure the people of God away from the the true gospel. 
And Paul writes about him in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 and 14. He says, and what am I doing? I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. And Paul is making reference here to the fact that he took money from other churches to serve the Corinthians. And he was going to continue to do that. He did not want anything from them. He simply wanted to serve them. And he goes on to say in verse 13, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. You see, Paul's desire was to be an open book before the people of God and before God. He wanted to have a clear conscience before God that there was no behavior that if the light was exposed in his heart, that it would bring shame or reproach on the name or the ministry of Jesus Christ. Great Puritan John Owen wrote these words concerning sin and the mortification of sin. He says, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work of mortifying sin. And he goes on to say, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And the Apostle Paul, he wanted to be a man that every day daily went through and examined his own heart so that there would be nothing that anyone could lay hold of to say that you would bring reproach upon the name of Jesus Christ. And that is hard work, isn't it? But it's work that has to be done. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 6, he talks about what must happen in order that within my heart, where God sees, we have to remember that this is a heart religion. This is not an external religion. This is where God sees. It's in the heart, not external. I can fool you, but I can't fool God. And Paul says, I want to be a man that stands before God with a clear conscience. He wanted to manifest the truth in his life. And in 2 Corinthians, he says, we destroy arguments and even lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. And here's what we must do. We must take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. That's what Paul wanted to be, and that's what we need to be. Jason and Jason, Carl, Steve, you're not here. Greg, you're not here. But that's what we are to be, the kind of men that we are to be. And Paul goes on to say that he did not want to be one that would tamper with the word of God. He did not want to contaminate the message of the gospel 
He did not want to contaminate it with philosophy, with his opinion, with tradition. He did not want to minimize the message of the gospel. And nor should we. He did not want to practice cunning, meaning that I'll do whatever I need to do to get my way, to get my agenda across. And there are so many charlatans out there today that do just that. They are cunning. And I'll just blunt the message of the gospel to get a few more folks in here, get a little bit more money, get a little better salary. Believe me, brothers and sisters, it happens out there today. Paul says, I don't want anything to do with that. Nothing to do with that. I have no selfish ends. My motivation is the mercy of God and the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he didn't want to handle the word of God deceitfully, meaning to falsify it, to adulterate it, to corrupt it, to use trickery in communicating it to the people, to the masses. Charles Spurgeon, who was a great preacher a long time ago, I can't remember when, 1800s, I think it was, And it's a long quote, but I thought it's a profitable quote. This is what he says the man of God is to be. If we do not preach undiluted, unadulterated truth, we must not expect that the natural heart of man will commend our honesty. We are to commend ourselves to every man's conscience not by cutting and trimming the word so as to make it palatable to our hearers, leaving one truth out to please this man and dwelling too long upon another truth so as to please some other hearer. But by bringing out the whole teaching of the Scripture in clear truthfulness that shall command the approval of the conscience over those who may not accept the truth that we proclaim. You see, we're not going to cut short the word of God. We're not going to blunt its ends. We're going to keep it sharp. We're going to preach the truth. And that's what you should demand of the ministry and the man of God. This is God's church. Not my church, not Steve's church. It's God's church. And God demands that the gospel of Jesus Christ be proclaimed. And Paul goes on to say that if the gospel is veiled, because not all men believe. But Paul says it's not going to be because, not going to be because we weren't clear in the proclamation of the gospel. It's not going to be because we blunted the ends of the gospel. It's not going to be because we deceived men into believing the gospel. No, no, no. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. There is a class of people that are perishing. And he goes on to say, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
Paul realizes that this message is not received or understood by all that hear. The sum, the gospel, is veiled. Those that are perishing, those that are in a state of unbelief, a state of guilt, a state of depravity, a state of weakness and wretchedness, to them the gospel is veiled. And he was making reference to as he mentioned in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, the new covenant. And he was comparing the old covenant to the new covenant. And he talked about the veil over Moses' face as he came down off the mountain. Moses represented the old covenant, which was passing away. This new covenant was full of life. The old covenant could only tell us about our sin but it could not eradicate our sin. But this new covenant, it is the covenant of life. And Paul is making the point that if the gospel is not understood, it's not because it lacked clearness. If the gospel is concealed, it is because the God of this world has blinded the eyes of those that are perishing. You know, Satan's design is to keep men in darkness. To keep them away from the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he will employ anything that he can to do that. He will employ riches. He will employ honor, pleasure, As Jane put it, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life, Satan will employ all those things to keep men locked up in the darkness. And he does that because he hates the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that it represents. His aim is to stop the influence of the gospel in this world. But it is the light of the gospel that shines into the hearts of men. And if they embrace that light, they can be set free from the power of sin. But blindness is what the enemy desires. The blind men to the gospel. And one thing that we have to understand, men willfully are blinded to the gospel. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2 that men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The light comes to them. I don't want it. I suppress it. I put dirt over it. I hide it. I put a box over it. I don't want to deal with the light. And then Satan comes along and keeps them in that state. You know, we have an important mission in this world. We'll get to that in a minute. Paul goes on to say that the focus of his ministry wasn't himself, but he was a servant for Jesus' sake. Your ministers of the gospel, they are not to be those men that focus upon my agenda or their agenda. We are servants 
We are servants of God, and we really are servants to all of you. That's our heart. That's the heart that we should have in ministry. We are servants for Jesus Christ. And the message that he was to proclaim was that Jesus Christ is Lord. I got to speed it up. Looks like I'm running out of time. Jesus was the focus of his ministry. And Paul was also addressing the fact that he had been charged with being an egotistic. Okay? His ministry was about Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes these words, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You see, Paul didn't preach a self-conceited doctrine, nor did he promote his own agenda, nor did he seek to gain wealth or riches. He preached Jesus as Lord, master, ruler of this world, Lord of his church. Paul taught as the Bible describes Jesus It wasn't another Jesus. It's the Jesus that we see in our Bibles. He was more than just a good man. He was more than just a good teacher. He was the God-man come in the flesh to reveal God to men. He was prophet, priest, and king. He is the one that comes to rule and to reign over the hearts of men. I come here to take over is what Jesus says. And he was the radiance of the glory of God. He was the exact imprint of his nature. And this is the man and the person that we are to preach, the God-man, Jesus. And that is what Paul preached. That is what we are to preach until Jesus comes. That's why Sunday after Sunday, we don't open up the philosophy books. We open up our Bibles and we preach the Bible Because it is the Bible that sets men free. And Paul goes on to say in verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul said, the God of creation, the God that called light out of darkness, this God, this God has called light to shine in our hearts. You know that light has been planted in you if you're a child of God. Before I came to know Christ, I was oblivious to the truth of God. I was oblivious to the standards of God and what he required. But light entered my soul and entered my heart, and the Spirit of God illuminated the Word of God to me. And what I didn't like before, I like now. You knew nothing of the Bible. I love the Bible now. They care less about the people of God. 
I love the people of God now. Didn't see the beauty of Jesus, but now I see the beauty of Jesus. Why did that happen? Because light has shone into my heart, shone into your heart. That's the reason that you love the word of God. That's the reason that you love the Lord Jesus and the people of God. It is God that commanded light to come out of darkness when this world was created. That same God said light shines into your heart and my heart. beauty of Christ, the beauty of his teaching. You see, it changes the disposition of my mind and the desires of my heart. And we should stop a moment and let it sink in and digest that light has shined into your heart. And then the next words that Paul says, they are absolutely powerful. There's a but. And he's been talking about the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The message of salvation that sets men free. And he says, but. We have this treasure in jars of clay. I'm just a jar. You're just a jar. All believers of Jesus Christ have this treasure. And it is the embodiment of a person. And that person is Jesus. He is in our hearts. In Colossians 2, verses 2 and 3, we're told that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of the understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It is treasure. Why? Because the word of God is excellent. The psalmist says the law of the Lord is perfect. It is well-rounded. It has the ability to convert or to revive the soul. The testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple The word of God has the ability to give you wisdom, to make you wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. This treasure points to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that has saved us. And he has chosen to put this treasure in jars of clay. And this metaphor describes who we are. Paul was sure that his audience would understand what he meant when he used this term, jars of clay. In 2 Timothy 2.20, he says, Now in a great house there are 
not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. You see, jars of clay, they were common items that were used in everyday life. And the average person would have multiple jars of clay in their homes. People of every class would have these jars of clay. They were a commonplace item. Another thing that the people would understand that these jars of clay, they are weak and fragile. The material that was used to make them was inexpensive. And the last thing that the audience would know and understand is that these jars of clay were made by someone. A potter fashioned it for its uses. And people used these jars of clay sometimes to put valuable things in them. And sometimes they used them for waste. So these were common everyday utensils that had no intrinsic value. And God says, that's what you are. You are a jar of clay taken from the earth, fashioned and molded by me. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Why did God put this treasure in these earthly vessels? So that the surpassing power would belong to God and not to us. You see, the weaker the vessel, the more glorious the power of God. So if you're here and you think you're weak, good. God put a treasure in you. And you see, Paul was also answering his critics. You know, they, they had said some pretty bad things about the Apostle Paul. They said, you didn't look too good. One commentator said, he was ugly. And you don't talk so well. You know, Paul answers his critics by saying, yeah, you know what? I'm just a jar. I'm just a clay pot. But God has chosen to deposit in me a treasure. And that treasure is the word of God, the power of the gospel. Each one of you that know Christ, you have a treasure. Okay? And the weaker you are, the more glorious is the power of God on display in your life. And Paul goes on in verse 8 to talk about we are afflicted in every way, 
but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Why did he continue? Because it was the mercy of God. And this treasure would go on because God had given him this treasure so that his power would be evident in him. Apart from the treasure, I'm nothing. We have to understand that God looks to the man who is humbled and contrite in spirit and trembles at his word. He's the potter. I am the clay. As Paul would say, he would gladly be a pot in the kingdom of God so that the surpassing power of God might be displayed in him. So we want a ministry that is built upon the mercy of God. We want a ministry that is full of integrity. We want a ministry that is based upon the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that frees men. And we must understand that we are vessels that have been given a deposit And that deposit is the most precious gift the world has ever known. It has the power to change a man's soul. And we can look throughout history. We can look at the, the, the apostles. They were men, ordinary men. But what did they do? What did God do through them? He showed his surpassing power. Because the world is changed upside down. And we are the result of that happening. It began back there. And God used nobodies to change the world. So here at Cornerstone, we're nobodies. And we pray that God would use us as nobodies to change this community that we live in. And that we would be light that shines and that we would be a reflection of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Well, let's pray. Our Father, as we bow before you, we thank you for the clarity of the words of the Apostle Paul. And Lord, we pray that you would help this place to always be a ministry that is built upon your mercy, a ministry that proclaims the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a ministry that is full of integrity, and a ministry that realizes that you have deposited into us a treasure that the world needs to see. So Lord, we pray that in our weakness, we would be moved by your mercy. And we pray that in our weakness, your surpassing power would be on display. Father, our world needs the gospel, and you have put that treasure into our hearts. So we pray and ask, Lord, that we would be good stewards of that treasure as a church and as each individual that is in this room that names the name of Christ. 
Father, we pray for strangers to this gospel. We pray, dear Lord, that they would know and understand that they can be set free from the power of sin if they would only submit to the Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.